Hello, this is Arlen. This is your first million. This episode is a raw recording of the audio of a video conference that Backstage Capital, my investment firm, had today. I believe it's November 24th, 2020. It's a Tuesday. We have monthly office hours where we talk to um, founders who have, founders or aspiring founders who have signed up over the past month at backstagecapital.com slash apply. Uh, There's a link in that link, that website that lets you sign up for office hours. And we answer pre-submitted questions and questions on the fly in the chat room uh, for about an hour. And it's just, uh, it's from the hip and we don't do any prep for it. And we try to give as much transparent information as possible. It is me, it's Christy Pitts, general partner at Backstage, Brittany Davis, general partner at Backstage, and Chacha Valadez, principal at Backstage. Really, really, really good stuff. Um, again, you can sign up right now. You can go to backstagecapital.com slash apply and look around and sign up for it for, for the next office hours. Um, but for this one, we just wanted to share it with everybody. So Take out your notebook. I know I say that every time, but I really, 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 really mean it this time because these are some straight up questions um, from different points of view. So we don't always agree on everything, but we definitely bring it. We bring all that we can to these office hours. Hope you enjoy it. Hope it's helpful for a lot of you. And uh, we'll see you next time, hopefully. That's great. So um, thank you all for coming to the November Office Hours with Backstage. Um, the way we're going to roll today is um, we had the opportunity for people to submit pre-questions um, ahead of time. So we'll go through some of those questions. And then we're also going to take questions here in the session. Um, so if you have any questions, please drop them in the chat. Um, please also feel free to um, contribute to the chat. So if you have um thoughts or resources that you'd like to share as we're going through different topics, please drop those there. And then um, depending on how our time goes, we may be able to um, work with a company. We may be able to answer questions or work with company one-on-one in the session, but we will wrap up at 1230 Pacific time or um, whatever time that may be, depending on where in the world you're calling in from. So to kick off, let's do some quick introductions. Um, I'm Christy. I'm a general partner at Backstage Capital. Arlen, do you want to introduce yourself? Well, say a little bit more about yourself, Christy. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I've been at Backstage since 2016. I'm in Northern California and I'm really excited about some different areas of investment. Um, some areas that we've been investing in recently are in health, um, also media and education. And um, yeah, I think that's that's pretty good. Now you can go, Arlen. Cool. I'm Arlen. Uh, I founded Backstage uh, and very happy to be here. Um, and again, thanks for uh, investing in yourself. Uh, we just had a new documentary that came out and you can find that at backstagecapital.com after the session on the front page. We also have a new five, year of, five years of impact report that was done by a third party that you can also check out on that same website uh, linked through. And I um, recommend that you check both of those out, especially if you're looking to um, 
to see about you know what backstage is all about and and if you're seeking investment but this is mostly an inf uh, information session and um, we welcome people from all over and also at different stages in their companies so chacho everyone chacho Valdez here i've been with backstage for three and a half or three and nine months or something like that um who's counting yeah, I am <laughs> counting, but yeah. <laughs> um, I'm secretly planning to take over backstage. Um, Fair enough. Or not so not secretly. Secret. Not yeah. so secret. <laughs> um, but I was born and raised in Wisconsin, um, have lived in Michigan, the Detroit metro area for the past four years, and um, currently work as a principal at backstage and Arlen's chief of staff at Arlen Rosero LLC. And so um, helping to source deals, diligence deals, support our portfolio, and then also helping um, Arlen and sort of like the day-to-day -day operations of her office. And um, in my free time, I really enjoy running. Um, my goal next year is to run an ultra marathon, um, which is 31 point something miles. Um, and it's just like, um, yeah, it's a really, really something I really enjoy doing. So um, yeah, that's me. Thank you, Brittany. Hey, I'm Brittany. I'm a general partner at Backstage. Um, I've been at Backstage for almost, coming up on three years. Um, joined the team as essentially head of deal flow. So really thinking about um, building out our pipeline of founders um, like yourselves, even through events like Office Hours. So I love, love, love Office Hours. I like talking to founders um, and, and answering any questions that you may have. Um, and in terms of where I'm based, I am based out of the DC area, um, Northern Virginia. And I'm also multitasking. I have a five month old baby here. She's listening in. Um, yep, I think you can hear her. Right, right there. Right, the commercial timing. <laughs> she likes listening in on these calls. Um, yeah, looking forward to the session. Thank you, Brittany. Awesome. So let's go ahead and jump in. Um, do want to note ahead of time that this session is being recorded. So keep that in mind. And um, we have several questions that were submitted about um, how to prepare for a fundraise. So we're going to start with um, a question that says, what do you need to see from a solo founder to prove that they have the right skills, network, and vision to successfully build their company? And are we going to be putting these in the chat so we can visually see them as well? Yes, we are. Awesome. Would any like one would like to take this one or start off? Anyone? Okay, uh, I'll start by saying that I think uh, so. It's a great question. What do you What do you need to see from a solo founder to prove that they have the right skills, network, and vision to successfully build a company? It's It's pretty much the same thing we need to see from any founder makeup. Um, but with the solo founder need to really be able to, to see early on, or at least when we're about to make an investment that you have, um, you have the ability to attract talent, that you have the ability to make, um, I guess, salient decisions and be balanced in your thinking because you're really doing the work of at least two people if you've decided to go solo. And we've talked about the solo founder versus non uh, in office hours before. And there really is no right or wrong answer, but there are some pros and cons to being a solo founder. So if you 
have decided to go solo and you will you thinking that you will remain solo um you you really have to whether it's fair or not or right or not you do have to make up for it in a lot of ways you have to overperform you have to exceed expectation and have a lot going for you as far as um even traction numbers that that we may be able to say well a, a team of two or three founders may not have as much traction, but we feel like, you know, with everybody combined, they can get there and there's enough um, checks and balances that they see where the things are missing and lacking. Well, if we see a solo founder, we have to assume that they, that they believe that they have everything that they need to do it the, the, to do the job outside of their employees. And so there really is this level of, um, Again, whether it's right or wrong or fair, there's there's a there's a level you have to kind of um, break through. So that's like overall. Um, maybe I'm sorry, I didn't see your message. Let me see what that is. Oh, um, Christy, do you want to say anything just about your ideas versus like solo founders versus uh, non in general? Mm -hmm. I think the um, biggest thing that comes up, and I'm thinking of a solo founder that we recently talked to that we're considering for investment. And in this case, the solo founder has been working on the company by herself for some time, and she has an external dev shop, but it's just been her plus this dev shop, and mm. now she's raising funding. And so a big part of the conversation that we had with her is um, how she's prepared to lead a team. Because as a solo founder, I think a lot of, I think it's, it's oftentimes um, happens where the founder and the company like becomes part of the founder's identity. And so when it comes time to go to the next step to fundraise and you begin hiring people and giving people the authority to make decisions on behalf of the company, that's a big transition to make. And so um, it's doable. There, there are lots of solo founders that have done it, but it's important to be mindful of that um, and just be prepared if, if um, let's say managing a team is not your skill set and you haven't had experience doing that before, then just like you would plan um, how you're going to allocate your capital towards building your product, it's important to plan to allocate capital towards investing in your skill set and being able to take that next step as a leader. Because you can build by yourself up to a certain point, but after that, you really need to have a team on board that are engaged and lead, and willing to learn from you and that you can lead them in order to reach your next milestones. Mm -hmm. And Preeti asks, uh, did I mean the solo founders need to show more traction? Yeah, I'm saying in, what it, in my answer, that a solo founder, if we're being honest, usually needs to show more traction. And it's not a science, so it's not always the case, but they need to show sort of why it's okay for it to just be one person. And that sometimes translates into they can prove like I'm solo, but I've done X, Y, Z. This company is where it's at and it's, and it's further along. Um, or just as far along as it would be with other people involved. And this is just how I've chosen to do it as a solo founder. I also will say that over the years, my opinion of solo founders, um, not solo founders themselves, but the idea of being a solo founder has changed slightly. I used to say I didn't, it didn't matter to me either way as long as you were getting the job done. The more I, the more I live and the more that I see the thousands of companies that we've seen and we've seen them through now all these years of ups and downs, I would say that if you have any way to have a co-founder, at least one co-founder, I would, I would look at that. Because this, 
I've always said that the, the solo founder route is a very lonely one and it's a very difficult one. And that there are, yes, some people who can do it, but why, just because you can, doesn't mean that you have to and that you should. And there are, um, there are few um, reasons not to bring on someone who it might, might as, you know, would have been your major executive your first hire, your second hire, and not to include them as, as a co-founder in some way. I mean, obviously there's the equity split and there's the control and all of that, but in the long run, um, losing 10 points and gaining sanity for seven years, I think is worth it. Um, Chloe says, should you take on a co-founder even if they're not technical and you need someone technical? Well, yeah, I mean, that's very specific. It's, it's a, another great, uh, question. A co you can have three, four co-founders. So yes, you can take on a co-founder, even if they're not technical and you do need someone technical. I think the co-founder is, a lot of times it's great to have, I, I think, you know, I know a lot of this sort of um, wisdom, common wisdom is, is have a technical co-founder and have someone who can sell basically. Like those are the two things that Michael Seibel says it all the time. He's absolutely, you know, he's not wrong. But I'm not really looking at it as much of a formula, as much as what is right for you. And it could be that you are two co-founders who um, are similar, but complement each other in different ways, have, have some things that are different. And then you hire out uh, a, a CTO or a, some sort of um, a technical lead. And you shouldn't, in, in no case do I believe you should force um, a fit of personality or of a vision just to have a co-founder. So that, yes, there will still be reasons and ways that you can be a solo co-founder if you're just not finding the right person or, or people. And if, and if things are going well and you can see that happening for the next several years. But I do think it's something that a solo founder should consider. I think they should have a very honest conversation with themselves to put a break on things and to really say, um, what, it, what are the downsides to being a solo founder? And what are the downsides to not being a solo founder and weighing those things? I think one quick point too, is that um, the founder journey is very, very difficult and long and um, it can get very lonely. And so to be able to have someone who's your counterpart when making like very big existential decisions for your company, um, is going to go a long way. Um, it'll be well worth it um, as opposed to um, not having one. Um, yeah. And Preeti and uh, Kayleen, I think that's how you pronounce it. They both have a similar question about what if the team is in place? What if they have, the solo founder has a team in place who are ready to come on board post fundraising? They may not be strategic enough to be co-founders though. Again, that's why I said, it's not 100% that everybody should have necessarily have co-founders. It's just a very important conversation to have that some people do not have. And um, the very first answer I had to the question was, they need to, we need to be able to see how you can attract uh, people. So, you know, stake other stakeholders. So that may be how you attract them to the co-founder, but it also could be, how do you attract those first few hires that are strategic and who do take you to the next level and they don't necessarily need to be your co-founder. There's not a perfect response to this because it is very individualized. And sometimes 
the same person can start two different companies and the first company is solo, the second company is with a few people or opposite of that. So it really is about so much of the situation and um, there are more questions that have to be asked than, than answers. Yeah, and just one real quick point, because I do think tactically how you communicate this and pitching and talking to investors is important. Um, the team slide, like if it's just you, I think sometimes it can't, if you're one person, can be a bit of a gap. Um, so if you're, if you're working with other people that, you know, do fill these other areas, like if you're more of the, I don't know, the sales business person and you have someone that you're working with technically, you know, you can feature them if you're working with them part-time or there's some, even a plan to bring them on um, with a fundraise or in a co-founder capacity, just showing that ability to attract these people, even in a slide is helpful. Mm -hmm. I've, I've just seen some people that kind of leave that out and I'm wondering, it leaves us, or at least me wondering, oh, well, you know, who else is helping you? I'm sure it can't, you know, a lot of times it can be quite difficult if it's just you and most likely you have all these people that you have been bringing on and just making sure you showcase that and your plan to work with them going forward or whatever that plan is. So yeah, wanted to add that. that's really good. And I would say, don't do that with just a bunch of advisors on a page and that's who you're presenting. I mean, that's a great point that Brittany just brought up. Um, do that with people you're actually working with day to day who are either currently employees or will or could become employees with a certain uh, resource with certain resources. Um, I wouldn't overdo it on the advisor slides. I've seen that to people's detriment. It really just tells me that you're trying to hide something or that you're you're just you think that names are going to you know name dropping is going to be helpful here. We're looking for the substance. We're looking for how are you getting this done. So the bottom line really is if if you can answer the question, if you can you know really dig deep and answer that question of how is this getting done and how is it at a, at a level and at a standard that is that is above and beyond it doesn't matter if it's one person or five all right Let's, yeah we'll go to the next question we'll come back if, if we need to we have several questions that i would put in the category of the backstage approach um you know i can't I can't do a Zoom call without using my little air quotes. <laughs> this, is how Christy does. this is how Christy does air quotes. <laughs> so um, I think, all right. I, I <laughs> so um, we are going to talk about um, what we consider when we make an investment, what our average check size is, um, if we're agnostic when it comes to our investment thesis. And then also we had multiple about traction and how important traction is and how founders can measure traction. And those um, traction questions came from multiple different industries. So I think we can answer it from a general perspective. And it looks like uh, Luciano has also put in kind of that same vein. So go ahead and, and, and paste in there, Christy, and then we'll just all tackle it. Okay. Um, Chacho, do you want to say a little bit about um, um, are you agnostic when it comes to your investment thesis? Chacho. Yes, we are agnostic. Um, I think we, um, our primary, our only focus is really the demographic of the founder. Are they a woman, person of color, or LGBTQ founder? First, uh, but, first, not only, first, first focus. First, right, yeah. right. That's right. Yes. Um, and um, beyond that, when it comes to like specific industries, we're agnostic, like, like I said, um, I think that we all each have our own certain um, 
flavor, not flavors, but like likes and what we like to see in founders and that type of thing. But it's, um, and certain industries that we um, think that we just enjoy as people, um, but that's not anything that's like set in stone when it comes to our investing thesis. Mm -hmm. Brittany? Yeah. Any questions, sir? Adding just some more of our approach, um, you know, we're looking for, we're a VC, like we're a venture fund, but I would definitely say that we have a different approach than most VCs. And we really like to get to know the founder and really want to know, um, you know, why are you solving this problem? And I think that drives us kind of more than, I've been at other funds, I've kind of worked with other people and a lot of them, you know, they're looking at the whole picture, but I would say we really try to drill in on that. So you'll notice that, you know, a lot of our questions are, kind of, you know, tell us about yourself, your background and why you're really working on this when we think about team. And then even product, when I think about like, what are you working on? Like, what problem are you solving? A lot of it's like how you think about the problem um, and how you fit with solving that problem. Like, why is that so important to you? So I think every time just thinking about some of our debrief discussions after we talk to a founder, that's what we're really circling back on. Um, Obviously, we'd like to see, you know, big market size, you know, solving a real problem, that kind of thing. But I think the, the companies that we're either most excited about or um, just thinking about our headliner, our group of portfolio companies, like the, what they're working on is really core to them and their experience, either professionally or personally. So I think mm -hmm. communicating that is, um, is really important. Yeah, thank you. Um... The average check size, so this says for seed round investments, but I, most of the people who come to us are in the pre-seed usually. Sometimes they're in seed or beyond, but our pre-seed is where we you know, do most of our first checks. They're gonna mostly be 25,000, um, which we've done for the past five years. And, and some of those $25,000 um, checks have become million dollar checks and beyond. Um, so on occasion, we'll do 100,000. Depending uh, if it's like a pre-seed or an extension or going into seed, and then at the seed stage and pre-seed, really, really basically, will say that they're raising somewhere between a um, hundred thousand and seven hundred fifty thousand on the pre-seed. Sometimes it's up to a million that they're raising on a pre-seed, um, but that'll be a twenty-five k check. Sometimes a hundred k check, depending on a lot of circumstances and, and variables. And then on the seed stage. If someone is there, because it's, it's like really, it's taking a lot longer for people to get to seed these days, I've noticed. Um, if they're at the seed stage, they're probably raising anywhere between a million and 2.5, just in general. Again, these are very general numbers. Um, our checks will then become somewhere between 100,000 and 500,000, usually 100,000, 150, 200,000, depending on where we're meeting you, if we've already invested in you in the ground prior to that. Um, so many variables. And, and then we, we go with you on the, the life of that and also work with uh, companies to help them with their rounds. Taking attraction. And then there are a lot, lot I'm go sorry, ahead. there are just a lot more, um, there are a lot more bridges than anything. Bridges are just all over the place. And it's not necessarily a good thing, but you know, people do a pre-seed round. They think that's enough to get them going. It is enough, but then it takes them an extra eight months to raise another round. 
and they have to get everything all kind of lined up. So then they'll say, okay, we're gonna do a bridge and the bridge is higher than, a, than the last one, this and that. And so it gets really tricky. Um, if you can try to be very intentional about your raises, um, especially if you're just getting started because that's gonna be one of the best things you can do for yourself because one day you'll look up, it's two years later, you've done three different rounds that have never ended and you, you have maybe 50% of your company left and you haven't even done your series A yet. All right, so on the traction front, um, this really depends on what, um, what kind of industry you're in. And also um, it depends on what kind of funding you've had to date. So um, for example, if you haven't raised any money to date and um, you're working on a concept, then the traction would really be around your ability to validate that the concept is of interest to people who could potentially, hopefully um, exchange value, like pay for what you're working on. Um, but then also there are people who come to us and they're raising a pre-seed round, but um, they've invested themselves from their savings and they have a product, a test product that they've put in market and they've had learnings from that product. Um, and then there are companies who are heavily research and development based. Um, a good example of that is a company in our portfolio called Allergy, um, which is making a, a, a connected device for people that have food allergies. And they have to go through FDA approval before they can go to market. And so they show their traction um, scientifically through um, the studies that they've done and also through um, the validation that their product actually works. So I would say, I would say it really depends on the um, industry that you're in, but it's really about showing the traction is another is another word for um, how do you prove that there's demand for what you're working on. And that, how you prove that depends on what you're working on. All right, so we got a Thank couple you. more. That's, that's really right on. Um, wait, Christy, I don't know if you can hear me. Yeah, can I hear can me? hear you, can you hear me? Christy? Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I guess it was for a minute, there was like a cutoff. But anyway, point is, I saw a question that was directed at Brittany. I thought she should um, address it. Um, Trip T, I believe is how I pronounce it. And it's, hi, Brittany, great chat at all rays. Given that you mentioned that you look at companies a little differently than other VCs, are the return expectations of your investors any different, of your LPs? No. So I think um, we just have a lens that allows us to understand founders and opportunity where other VCs might miss that. Um, we still are aiming to deliver returns for our LPs, similar to other VCs. Um, but I think just with a, yeah, with a more, with a wider lens, not even wider, just deeper. There's a, just a different lens. I'm trying to think of the you know, <laughs> it's a filter lens. Yeah, yeah, somehow it is different. Where, you know, for example, I'm trying to think of an example. Um, even so, there's a hair company, a few hair companies in our portfolio. Um, one I'm thinking of is Curl Mix. Um, you know, a lot of venture funds might see a hair product company and think, okay, they either don't understand it, um, don't think it can do venture returns because it's maybe not as tech enabled or doesn't look like something that they've seen have that exit profile. Um, but what we're seeing with the company and just tracking returns internally, you know, it's delivering, you know, essentially returns on our side, um, like a venture backed company would. So I think that's kind of how we look at things differently. Um, 
And I think just more broadly on a portfolio level, just so you can have some context on how VCs think a little bit. Some VCs are only looking for those companies that can be like a billion dollar company. And I think we've had a lot of conversation and just our thoughts where not every opportunity necessarily has to be that, but it's still within range of venture level returns for our LPs. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so I guess the takeaway is that we still have that goal, like we're venture funds, we're a venture fund and we need to deliver, but with kind of a wider portfolio approach of thinking like not everything has to be the Uber or Airbnb type of return. It, there's a lot in the middle. And then secondly, on the types of companies, um, just a broader set that a lot of VCs are missing allows us to capture some of that return that other people are yes. leaving on the table. And to add on to that, um, you know, a lot of a lot of funds will say, and, and these are funds that we work with, and funds that are later stage to us. So it's nothing to just throw away. It's just not how we approach. But a lot of funds will say they're looking at, you know, they'll make in a in a portfolio, they'll make fifteen investments over a two year period or a three year period, and every one of those investments, they may see a thousand companies, but they're only going to make the the fifteen or the ten, and every one of those they expect to do ten x or more. And then when it really comes down to it, seven years later, um, seven or eight of those companies have gone under, two or so of those companies has overperformed. And then you're somewhere around, if you're doing really, really, really well, you're somewhere around 3Xing of your, of your fund. And that's and a 3Xing a fund at any size, $200 million, billion dollar fund in, three, in seven years is, is almost um, unheard of, but it's, it's, it's heard of because it's like, you know, maybe top 10%, top 5%. So what the way that I think about it early on or thought about it early on and how we've been talking about it since then is it's really just cash on cash. What I care about is if an LP gives us a dollar, can we give them $3 back in a reasonable amount of time? And that for us, that's really great because it means that as long as we can be price a little price sensitive like we have to be smart about the price that we get in on and we do push back on people sometimes but if we can be a little price sensitive taking what we've picked up over the years our own algorithm um we can have a company exit for 20 million dollars and it be a really big significant win for us whereas at another fund what whether because they have different ideal ideas and ideals or because they simply have too large of a fund to for this to work they may look at that as an absolute failure that you just had to do like a fire sale because you did it for 20 million because they need you to be 200 million or 2 billion and so we just kind of stay um, in a cash on cash kind of feeling about things. And as our check sizes get bigger, as we follow on, we're also looking at, okay, now we're in your third round, you're raising 10 million on 40. And do we believe you will be a $120 million company at that point? Or do we sit tight with our original investments and do cash on cash there? So we're doing what every other fund is doing um, when they're thinking about what is their approach? We just have given ourselves more room to have a more founder friendly approach. All right, so there were a few that we skipped in the chat, so I want to bring them back up. And Chacho, actually, I would, um, if you wanted to take the lead on answering these, the, they say, what captures your attention most when being pitched to? How can a business stand out when fundraising? And what things do you think set early stage founders apart? 
Great questions. Um, so I think what captures my attention the most is going back to what Brittany said when it comes to having a really strong why behind what you're building. And the reason it's so important is just because like, like I mentioned earlier, it's such a difficult and long road. And if you, if you have a really strong why behind driving you, you'll be able to hopefully um, like get through the ups and downs of what is a startup. Um, and I think all of us here at Backstage can attest to while building Backstage, like the why behind what we're doing has really helped us navigate the like hard times. Um, and it has not, certainly has not been smooth sailing with Backstage, um, even though it might seem like it is from the outside, but um, sort of when I think about even my own journey, that is what really roots me to continue to move forward and sort of like, uh, yeah, keep going. Um, and then of course, like I kind of, um, when I think about like, if someone sends me a cold email or, or and I get an intro, um, I kind of ask myself like, or I ask, try to see like, is this already something that's awesome already? Um, in order to sort of filter my like whether or not I want to take a meeting with the person and what that's like super um uh like vague but like you kind of ha already have to have something that's like really awesome either with you or with what you're building in order to like grab my attention and to schedule a meeting um let's see how can you stand out how can a business stand out when fundraising? Um, I think it depends on the stage. At the pre-seed, I think if you're able to show that this is a viable pro problem and that you have taken steps into um, proving that it's viable and that you have like, you're basically showing progression. You're not, you don't have to have like serious crazy traction, but you're also not just like pontificating on the idea and being like, oh, this would be really cool if I could do it. It's like, no, what are you doing to validate this? Um, how are you trying to either survey potential customers, talk to your um, customers, get a pilot, whatever it might be. Um, and then um, what do you think sets early stage founders apart? I already answered that, didn't I? Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, it's really that package, really, you know, it's, yeah. it's all of that, like what Chacho is saying, what something has to excite him in that, or it doesn't have to, but he he kind of gravitates toward that. That's mm -hmm. just basically every investor, no matter what they're saying, no matter what they're talking about, you know, what, what slides they give you and this and that and the other, what they're really saying is, does it stir me? Does it, does it drive my imagination? Do I want that thing to exist that you're describing or that you've already started on? And then it goes into, okay, now let's talk about like the person that is doing it, are they the right person to do it in our opinion? All of it is opinion. It's all opinion. It's all privileged, uh, you know, bird's eye view opinion where you all are doing all of the work. And, and you know, backstage, we feel definitely like founders ourselves. So it's, it's not that we're so um, detached, but that's really the, the reality of it. Yeah, and I think it's important to note too that, um, and I, I, uh, I can't take credit for this quote, but I heard Olin Douglas say this um, on a recent uh, webinar, but he said, like, just because we're saying no to you doesn't mean that the world is saying no to you. So just because any venture capitalist or angel investor um, says no to your company, that doesn't mean like the entire world or there won't be other investors who will say yes to you. Um, and so I think it, 
like we are only able to invest in about 2% of what we see. Um, and I think that's uh, something important to note that we often have to um, turn down really strong founders and companies just because of how highly competitive our deal flow is. Mm -hmm. All right, so looking in at the questions that were pre-submitted, we did have a question about valuation and I'm seeing some in the chat that are also kind of specific to the dynamics of a fundraise. Mm -hmm. So I think we can start with the one that came in through the pre-submission and then we'll come back to the questions in chat. Um, in the pre-submission, um, there's a company and this is, was a long question, so I'm paraphrasing it here. But essentially, there's a company that's raising capital. It's the first round in. Um, they've been transparent about how much money they've been raising, but investors are throwing different valuations at us. Mm -hmm. And so um, the question is, who ultimately sets a valuation for the first round? And how, do, how, as a founder, do we go about having the conversation with investors who are valuing our company much lower than others? Do we turn them away if they're not willing to meet the valuation of another investor? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, cool. Okay. So I'll, I'll start by trying to tackle it in your first round. Um, do we have any indication of what they're, how much they're raising? No. In your first round, um, you're most likely raising somewhere between 250 K and a million. Um, maybe you're trying to raise more than that, but I, I can't see a really great reason to be doing that on your first round, unless you're maybe you've just exited a company or you have, you know, something else is going on. So, or you're, you're going out, you're looking for an accelerator that's doing 100,000, 150. Um, you're more, more than likely doing this on, a, on convertible notes or safe, which is not an equity priced round. It's a, or a valuation round. It's a round that says these investors will lend you money for two to three years uh, with the expectation that you're going to raise more. And when you raise more, that money they lent you, that loan will um, convert into equity at, at, at a pre, perhaps a pre-conceived um, uh, um, valuation, which is called a cap in that case, um, with some sort of discount, something that helps them, be, help, like helps, uh, is favorable to the investor who was early, which is important to do. And what you, the ideal situation is that someone one of these investors, because it sounds like you are talking to investors and they're interested, it's that someone has said, I will lead this round for you, or I will, you know, either officially or unofficially lead this round. And when you have a lead, they help you set terms. Usually they send you a term sheet or several people do, um, but you can, you can say that. So let's say you're raising $500,000. You could go out and just try to raise $500,000 and see what people, you know, say and what they want to do. Or you can say, we're raising $500,000. We're looking for a lead to do at least 150K of that. Again, these are general numbers. And that lead will take lead um, term sheets so that you can say what you think, you know, what you want to do this under. And so you'll, you might get someone that says, okay, I'll do 150K for at a 3 million uh, cap. Someone else may say, I'll do 150K at a $2.5 million cap. And then a third person may say, I'll do 200,000 at a um, $2 million cap, right? So they're, they're all negotiating. So even if you're in the situation where you even have people doing that that early, that's actually a good thing. This is, these are good problems to have, but you need to have some very um, sort of rigid thinking about that. You need to be able to be disciplined and what you want. 
And it's not always the person who gives you the best valuation. So the lowest valuation in that case, it may not be that they're giving you the most money and the lowest valuation that makes your decision. It may be that you're willing to do it for a higher valuation, but you see so much of value in that investor and that investor, the, 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 the cap or the terms or any of those things seem reasonable. They're not ideal for you because you want less. You want it to be cheaper or you want it to be more expensive for you, but they are at least, uh, and I'm sorry, I may have said that a couple of ways backwards, but you know what I mean. If you're the founder, you want a higher valuation. If you're the investor, you want a lower valuation. Um, um, but it really comes down to a few things, not just what that one person is saying is that the best math. So if there's no one stepping up to be your lead, then that's when you really have to say for yourself, like if there's someone that you see who's stepping up to be a lead, you've looked at different offers, you've decided on one, you go with that, you tell all the other investors, this is what we're going on. We're doing a $3 million cap. It's a 10% discount. The lead is doing 150K and there's 350K left and you can take that or not. And we would love to have you. If you don't have someone who's stepping up to do that, which a lot of times in that first round, you may not, um, then you need to set terms. You need to say, how much am I willing to give away? Because when to, to sell away, because when you have a converting event, all that's going to go away. Somebody mentioned 20% stake, 20% of your company which is very, very, very common in that first and second round is a lot to give up. And so while it's not bad, it's not like anyone's trying to steal anything from you, you really, really need to need that capital and to know what you're going to do with it. You're going to need to really enjoy the people you're working with, the investors, and say, is it worth that 20% eventually going away? Um, but you can set those terms. If everyone in that 500K is saying, I'll do 50, I'll do 50, I'll do 50. Nobody wants to lead. It's a little bit of expense for them to lead because they have to get their lawyers involved. Most likely it's more work. It's actually a risk kind of like reputationally because if you don't do well, then they, they kind of brought other people in, et cetera. Um, so they might not be someone at that early stage. So then you set terms. Okay, I only want to give away up to 20%. Therefore, we're only going to, the, the cap will be, um, we're going to ask for three, a three mil cap, you know, um, and maybe somebody will negotiate us down to 2.5 and then we'll go from there. Something to that effect. But that's, that's how holistically to look at a scenario like that. And we have one follow-up from Ye Hong. She said, what are your typical ownership targets as a firm? We don't have them today, uh, really. Um, we've kind of been situational. We've been in the situation where we could have taken on a lot more, we've been asked to take on a lot more, but we just didn't have the, the capital. So a lot of times we are in for half a point, we may be in for one point. With our accelerator, we had a, 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 an exchange of five points. Um, eventually, and starting in 2021, I, I believe we'll be able to do this, then it'll become a matter of, we need to be at 10% or more, and we'll start to be a little bit more, um, not, too, not too sharp of elbows, but it will make more sense for us to be in at that amount. Right now, again, thinking cash on cash, as long as we feel like we're not gonna get diluted out to, to, to dust, um, then we can be in at pretty much any amount. And then we stay on. Now, there are companies that we were in for maybe a half a point at one point. Now we have three, 4% because we've come back and done follow on. But of course, that's a lot more expensive for us to do uh, 
two, two rounds from then than that first round. Okay, great. Um, going back to the pre-submitted questions, because there's a few coming in chat, but there's one I want to hit on before we go back to chat. So going back and forth. Um, we came from two people. The question is, what happens when you've talked to an investor and they pass and then things change with your company? Is it okay to reach back out to them? Um, is a no a no forever? What's your advice there? Christy, you take that one. All right, I'm dropping it in the chat. Um, I, think, I think that sometimes investors, when they say no, they mean no forever. And one who's really public about this is Hunter Walk from Homebrew. And um, there's actually a benefit of that, which is that it saves you time. If you know that the investor said no and is passing and it's a no forever, then you can just cross them off, off your list and move on. But if there's an investor um, that you really wanna have into your company and there's um, maybe there's a strategic fit to their investment or you bonded really well with the partner, there's just something about that investor that sets them apart from the rest, then I think it's appropriate to continue to reach out to them. Um, an easy way to know if this is a good method is when the investor passes to ask them if it's a good idea for you to include them on update emails. And if they're interested in being included on update emails, then that means that their no is probably like a soft no. And um, as investors, Chacho mentioned this earlier, um, we only have the opportunity to invest in about 2% of the companies we see. And that's not because we don't want to invest in more companies. That's because we're constrained by the amount of capital that we have. And so there might be a company that we meet that we're really interested in, but for whatever reason, there's another company that's more competitive than them at that moment that we end up investing in. That doesn't mean that we won't end up investing in that first company, but it might be some time before we're able to make that investment. So um, long TLDR is, um, it depends. And you want to um, be conscious and judicious about how you spend your time. Um, you don't want to keep reaching out to the same investor over and over again um, at the expense of making new relationships. But if you think that the investor could be a really solid fit for you and, and you love them, then I think it's worth the effort of keeping them engaged and keeping them updated on your company. I'll add just a little bit there. Um, I also, I, I don't want that to come across as the only reason we invest in 2% is because of lack of funds. That is not necessarily 100% the case. It is also because it's part of our model to be very, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? We have, you know, certain standards and, and we're looking at, you know, we're a venture fund. We're not a uh, nonprofit grant maker at this point. We could be one day. And so, you know, it's nothing against that. But we also, as investors, have um, only so many companies that we will invest in, no matter what our assets under management are. And that is the case with all these investors that you're talking about. So whether or not they're still raising, it's really important, as Chris, you said, to like just kind of know what a fund is what like where they are in the life of their fund and what their situation is because a lot of times especially now like it's November we know for a fact there's some funds who have run out of their yearly allocation although they've raised a commitment of more money they may have run out in August because they kind of were excited earlier in the year and they're just having kind of ghost conversations that they know that they can't really um, do anything about until February so we try to be really upfront about that. Uh, we have some, some uh, ability to make investments now. We've made probably, I don't know, at this point, maybe 20 new investments this year, another 10 follow on. 
um, something to that effect, maybe a little bit more. And that didn't really get started until the summer because we had a, a very dry period. And now we're kind of closing up shop for the year and we've made a, a couple of stealth investments that we'll announce soon. So, you know, we know going into next year, we're gonna probably look at towards the end of quarter one where we're just, re, you know, going back again. So it's okay to ask this, those questions. It's okay to ask the, found, the, the funder, the investor, um, you said no, what is your take on it? Do, should, I, should I be giving, like Christy said, should I be sending you more updates or, sh you know, is it, is it no, why is it a no? And if they have the time, they should answer you. If they don't have the time, I wouldn't um, dwell on it and spend too much time there. Um, Martha's, I know we have this, but I just like this question. Is it okay? Oh, yeah. um, is it too late to reach out to investors to set up calls for this year? Should we send an intro letter anyway and set a meeting in Q1? Yeah, I'm going to be straight up with you. Right now, it's like you're going into like Thanksgiving. Some people celebrate that. You're going into other holidays. Most investors know who they're going to invest in for the rest of this year. Um, you can definitely reach out to them and definitely say, hey, can we set up something for Q1? But the one thing that I've seen that will definitely turn people off is to say, okay, it's November, what is it, 23rd or 24th right now? Um, we're closing next week. We're closing by the end of this year. And we've just met you. That is, that doesn't make sense no matter what month it is, but it also makes, it's really almost rude to do that now. Like rude, no. <laughs> it's like rude to do that now because it's, you're, you're basically setting an ultimatum, an ultimatum, and it's, it's not good for either party. So if you have any kind of inclination that this company, this fund would like what you're doing. If you know you're not gonna need to talk to them till next quarter, yes, reach out, say, hey, um, don't be upset if they don't respond. Some of them are already putting up their away messages. I have an away message up um, that says I'm just overloaded and I probably won't even see most people who are new uh, investments until maybe after MLK day. So uh, I would say, yeah. And Chloe says, what if they say you're too early? Is that usually more a no or? Well, so if, if they say to you, you're too early a company, sometimes that's just a blanket thing to get you out the way. But a lot of times, no problem, Martha. Um, a lot of times they're saying you're too early for our fund. Now go back to understanding who the investor is. Are you too early? Should you have even approached them to begin with? Are they a fund who invests pre-seed? or pre-product or wherever you are that is too early for them. If you approach them and you are literally too early for them, that is your bad. You need to reassess and start making a list and actually go to people who could actually invest in you. If you feel like, no, I've seen them invest in companies with our same traction, um, they're saying that, then that just means for some reason or another, either they're just not interested and they're just trying to give you an easy way out or on themselves, or they're saying, your traction doesn't impress me enough. Uh, they may like the company, they may like you, but you're just, they just see too much deal flow for what your traction is to impress them. And then you have to make the decision of, do I, can I hold on and get more traction, which is always a good idea, um, or do I go somewhere else who may be okay with the, the lack of traction? But it's always a good idea to have people chasing you 
And the way you do that the most is to really do your research on who is making those, who, who are making those checks. You know, you think about Lolita Taub, who used to be at Backstage, she's making those early checks, uh, investments. She's doing a matchmaking even with early investors. Sahil is doing uh, early checks, Hustle Fund, um, um, many, many more, uh, Unshackled, et cetera, uh, accelerators backstage. If you're not talking to those early stage investors and you're trying to go to Sequoia, you're, if you, even if you get a response, it's not gonna be the one you want necessarily. All right, they reached out to me, haha. Who did? That's awesome, Chloe. Oh, good, good. <laughs> But if they yeah. say that you're too early, so they're 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 doing their diligence, but you're still still too early, and you need to have more traction in order for them to feel like it's a slam dunk. Okay, all right. I'm just looking through the chat to make sure that we've caught all the um, caught all the questions here. Um, here's a question from Tripti. I know that it varies, so maybe you cannot answer, but as a general guideline, what percentage of the use of funds do you typically see for talent tech marketing for a product that does not rely on heavy CapEx, FDA, et cetera? So in other words, how, like, how do founders use funds once they have raised them? Most, uh, oh, sorry, um, Christy Chacho, Brittany? I was just gonna say Brittany, if you wanted to chime in. Yeah, I was gonna say, can you paste the question in the, where is it? I'm trying to. One okay. Second. Yeah, I'm a little visual in that sense. Yeah. Tell me both, Brittany. <laughs> I think it's a sign of genius. I'll take it. It's a Zoom restriction. It doesn't let me paste. Oh. Um, okay. Basically saying how, how do you allocate your capital once you've raised it? Like what should it be used for in those early stages it seem like? Yeah, that's so variable by companies. I don't know if I have a solid answer there. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I would say be careful about uh, salaries. That's the one thing that kind of gets on my nerves is, is if I see a lot of salary and I'm getting a little, um, I'm turning into Mark Cuban a little bit there because he's always about that salary has to be lower than, you know, can't, I don't want to see six figures on your salary until you've exited whatever. Um, but I'm also like, you know, I, I think it comes from being a founder myself and, and knowing what sacrifices have to be made. Um, I, I, yeah. So, you know, if, if we're able to do that, I feel like the, the companies, you're not going to get market. If you want market for your talent, you got to go and work for somebody else. So really think about salaries and what, what people can live off on. Also don't starve. So think about that. Don't be the person who's like, I'm not going to pay myself until we do X, Y, or Z. That's only going to make you bitter and it's going to come back to haunt you. So kind of find a, a strike a balance there. Um, you, someone came to me and asked me for money like personally and they said and I, they said that they were going to use all of it for marketing they were going to um, um, go in and get all this Instagram and Facebook marketing and I said okay great um, how, how much do you sell when you're just posting things on those two sites and you just link to whatever it is you're selling how much do you sell then to the thousand people you have already zero the answer was zero they get in zero sales when they post already organically, but they think that they can magically put some money on it. And then all, all of a sudden people are gonna start buying this because more people will see it. No, so your, your marketing dollars need to reflect and be a realistic in a way that they reflect in our uh, make sense kind of, you know, the more we put in, the more we, the more we see happen. So we you need to understand how much does it cost to get uh, a customer and then kind of, uh, you know, how, what is the lifetime value of that customer? How do those two numbers um, uh, match? The, the, can you get those lower, higher, et cetera? And um, 
and then that's when you decide where you put your marketing dollars. So your salary needs to be priced and you need to be sensitive about that. Your tech, a lot of times, um, you know, that's a big decision too. Is like, am I going to outsource? Or I'm going to hire people. It's better to hire people. It's better to have people in house if you're going to raise a certain amount. Um, but don't let that be the thing that stops you from moving for a year because you couldn't get that perfect person at that perfect salary. So there are just a lot of things to consider that are, so again, one of those questions that there's more questions to ask in order to get the answer. All right, let's take Luciano's question here in chat and this can be our last one. Um, okay. So he said, how do you recommend determining an appropriate valuation cap for an e-commerce company looking to do a seed raise who has reached 2 million in ARR by bootstrapping? Wow, that's awesome that you're a two million ARR from bootstrapping. So I want to call that well, out. I would like to know what your what your profit margins are. Are you profitable, and are you like are your margins crazy? Because if your margins are crazy and you're profitable, don't raise a dime. Just go off to the sunset and live your li best life, and just dress how you want and do what you want and tell people to go f off. All that. <laughs> yeah, you have great margins. Um, I don't know very technically what the margin should be, but those look cool to me. Um, let's see. So what type of company is it? It's e-commerce. So it's e-commerce with 25% to 40% margins and you do 2 million ARR by bootstrapping. Um, I would say, I don't know necessarily how to give you the right valuation. I think it's like earlier the conversation was you need, to, what does the market bear? So you need to go to a few investors who would be in your lane and ask them to price you. And then you make the decision based on what seems right to you. I don't think there's a perfect um, formula. Although I'm sure if you Google it, there probably literally is a formula to, to look at that. It's probably X, uh, X um, six or X 14 or something like that. Um, but what I would say too, is also look at alternative funding and non-dilutive funding that if, because it sounds like whatever you put into it, the bootstrapping, it's something comes out like the answer I just had before. And instead of getting diluted on that, you might look and having the expectation then that your company now has to 10X or 100X, you might look at non-dilutive capital that is just simply saying, you know, pay us back with revenue. You get to keep most of your control and your equity and right off into the sunset and tell everybody to go F themselves. Yep. Um, we got a great comment from Karen in the chat, Luciano, to check out ClearBank. Um, I also dropped Shopify uh, yeah. if you use it. Yeah, uh, and I, I would say that I, I would like to just say that I don't necessarily, um, I don't, I don't necessarily think that ClearBank is is the number one option here. I'm not going to go ahead and say that don't use them or don't check them out, but there are other options. And yeah. Shopify would be my first choice. But with that level of revenue, there are a lot of alternative options to venture. Lots. All right, that brings us to 1230. Thank you everybody for joining us today. We're gonna to follow up um, with a quick email with some resources for you. And uh, yeah, anything else on the team? Arlen, Britt, Chacho? I was thinking uh, I'll probably put this audio into a podcast episode so that more people can hear all of your awesome questions and benefit from that. And so just letting you know that, thank you again for showing up, for investing your time and uh, in yourself and asking these questions. Everybody seems to be doing really awesome. Um, remember, if, if, we say, if we don't say yes today, we might say yes another time. And if, we, and if someone says no, don't, like Chacho said, that Olin said, don't let that be the end all. You know, this is a, this is a big, there's a big game board here. And there's a lot of different players in it. And, um, you know, find your leverage and your lack thereof and understand both 
and then you'll be, um, um, by understanding your lack of leverage, you gain leverage. Bye, everybody. Take Bye, care. Uh, thanks. Take care. <laughs> Thank you.